Good morning, everyone. Good morning, great to see you. Well, uh, last weekend was a very stormy one. Lots of houses were tested. The roofers and the fencing contractors were very happy, uh, getting a lot of supply of work. And uh, also facing, obviously, these global storms, as Nathaniel's already led us, thinking about the situation in Ukraine. Uh, we are this morning, the title of this morning's message is The Distress of My Dwelling. We're doing a, a series at the moment called A House for My Name, about how God, his plan is to build a house in which he dwells with his people. And that house is precious, but often tested. And uh, today is about that. So far in this series, for those of you who are new here this morning, we've, we've been working through the Old Testament. We've covered the story of creation, which is a story about God building a house, forming the earth as a place for him to dwell with the human race. We then looked at the story of the Exodus, the story about God rescuing his people out of slavery, bringing them into freedom, and then coming into the promised land. Again, it's about God's house. He's building a place for him to dwell with his people. And uh, we've had a couple of weeks break in the series, but where we were a couple of weeks back was about the priestly house of Eli, how they failed, and how the Lord then called a young boy called Samuel to serve faithfully before him. And today we're going to be looking at this story of Samuel, which really marks a turning point in the story, working through the Old Testament. The, uh, the family of Eli, the priests, they were responsible for looking after the tabernacles, the, the tent where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and was a center of worship for the people of Israel. And uh, God removed them because of the sin of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. This is what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. And uh, that's not a great description of your kids to be recorded forever. What are your kids like? Scoundrels. That's what Hophni and Phinehas were like. And the first few chapters of 1 Samuel tells this story about uh, the calling of Samuel, about judgment coming upon Eli's house. And uh, this is all wrapped around with what happens with the Ark of the Covenant. The Israelites were at war with a people called the Philistines, not doing very well. They take the Ark of the Covenant with them, this wooden box covered in gold, which contains the tablets on which was the law which God had given to Moses by which the people were to live. This was the, the, the object which most represented where God is. And so as the Israelites took the Ark into battle, it was like they were carrying the Lord into battle. And the expectation was that the Lord would then win the battle against the Philistines for them. That doesn't happen. Instead, the Philistines win the battle. They capture the Ark of the Covenant and take it back to Philistia. And uh, the Philistines think that they have won. They think that they have conquered God because they've captured God's box, captured the Ark. They've overcome Yahweh. Take God back, Yahweh back, and put the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of their God, Dagon. What's really going on here is that this is another kind of extra story being worked out. The Exodus story keeps getting repeated throughout the bigger story the Bible tells. And what we see here is that God kind of goes into exile. The ark goes into exile in Philistia. But there God defeats his enemies. Uh, just as plagues came upon the Egyptians, plagues come upon the Philistines. And this false god Dagon, his idol, falls down on the threshold of the temple and is broken to pieces. And God is actually bringing triumph out of humiliation. It looks like hum humiliation. 
The Ark of the Covenant, the place where God dwells, carried into captivity in Philistia, put in a pagan temple, but in that place of humiliation, God brings triumph. And that, of course, is the gospel story. This is the good news of what Jesus has done. That Jesus, in his humiliation at the cross, that is the place where Jesus triumphed. It's at the cross. Absolute humiliation. Absolute victory as Jesus defeats sin and death. What we see here with the ark is a picture of what will happen with Jesus. Now, the Philistines see that God is still winning, and so they send the ark back to Israel. They put it on a cart. The cart goes into Israel, returns... But things have changed. Up to that point, the ark had always been placed in the tabernacle, in this tent which Moses had built. Now when it goes back to Israel, it doesn't get replaced in the tent. And instead what happens is that preparations for the temple begin. There's going to be a new house. There's going to be a royal house which is being prepared. And Samuel is the midwife to that transition. This transition from the era of who were known as the judges, leaders of Israel, through to the royal house, the kings who would come. Samuel midwifes that process, and Samuel is a faithful priest. He's not like Eli's scoundrel sons, Hophni and Phinehas. He's faithful. And he's like Moses because he's a prophet. And he's like the judges, but he's the last and the greatest of the judges before the kings come, and he leads Israel into victory and a new era. And so we get to First Samuel chapter 7, and it says that Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, which means stone of help, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. This was kind of the culmination of Samuel's leadership. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. And he puts a stone, Ebenezer, to remind the people of who God is and what God has done. We often sing that song. I think we're going to sing that song once I finish speaking. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Thus far, God has helped us. And so we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, which is where I want to focus this morning. And this is a linchpin chapter because it describes the transition from this previous era of the judges who led Israel to the era of the kings who were going to lead Israel. This is what it says. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders or judges. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out, up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. 
He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we should be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. This is a linchpin chapter, the transition from the judges to the kings. And it begins with the tragedy of Samuel, where we see history repeating again as history does, that Samuel has sons who are like Eli's. Eli had these corrupt sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who perverted justice and accepted bribes and cheated the people. And now Samuel's sons, uh, Joel and Abijah, are acting in the same way. And in response, the people say, we need a king. Now, Samuel has been made leader, judged by the Lord. It says that Samuel's sons were made leaders by Samuel. And while Samuel followed the Lord, his sons follow their own desires, and their own desires are corrupt ones and lead to more corruption and perverting justice and taking bribes. And corrupt leadership is a real problem. It's a problem because of what it does. Corruption, just when corruption is in a system, it seeps through and distorts and destroys everything, makes everything so much more complex and difficult and unjust. But it's not just that it's bad for us. Actually, the Lord detests corruption. This is what it says in Deuteronomy. When God was giving instructions through Moses about how his people were to live, that leaders should be just was central to that. He said, appoint judges and officials, don't, that they, and they must judge the people fairly. Don't pervert justice. Don't show partiality. Don't accept a bribe. Follow justice and justice alone. These were the standards by which leaders were meant to live and lead by. The reality is that keeping corruption out of the system is a never-ending battle. There are those who would say that the human race, mankind, is fundamentally good. But we can see the lie of that in the way that corruption always creeps in, sometimes rushes in, that systems of leadership, government, authority are always prone to corruption seeping in. And there are things which we do to try and stop corruption from seeping in. In our context, we have all kinds of checks and balances. We have MPs who are voted in and can be voted out. And then we have a House of Lords who are meant to hold the House of Commons to account. And then we have an independent judiciary who are meant to apply the law with impartiality. And we have a free press who can investigate and expose corruption when it happens. We have all these checks and balances which are good and are helpful and are necessary. And because we have those things and because our society generally is mercifully corruption light. We have expectations as citizens. We don't expect to be wrongfully arrested or incorrectly fined, and we don't have, expect to have to give backhanders to officials to get things 
done. But even though that's the case for us, thank God, we know that corruption is always lurking. And so we hear the stories. We know the stories. They make the news. All the stuff that's happened to the Metropolitan Police recently of corrupt police officers. And we shouldn't dismiss the whole because of a few, but we know that corruption can creep in. And we sit with politics that, although many MPs, I'm sure, actually serve for good reasons, we can see that corruption creeps in. And 10 years ago, whenever it was, we had all the MPs' expenses scandal. And we just see how corruption tends to find its way into systems, whatever checks and balances and protocols and accountability is put into place. And where Samuel had been a just leader, his sons are not, it doesn't take long for things to change. And what do you do when corruption starts to creep in and consume the system? What you need is better rule. What you want is a king. And so the people say, give us a king. We need a king because corruption is coming in. Corruption actually limits human freedom. And there's this kind of irony that in order to be free, you need a king. You need rule. You need someone who is going to maintain order and keep the laws and defend against enemies. And so the people say, give us a king. Samuel, you are great. Your sons are not so great. Give us a king. And there's that kind of desire in, in the human race for rule, for leadership. We both kind of chafe against it, but we also know that we need it. And that's not just an evolutionary quirk. It's actually what God has made us for because God has actually made the human race to rule. Psalm 8, which we read at the start of our service last week, says this, You have made him, mankind, a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. What that psalm describes is the natural destiny of the human race, which is to rule. We're made to rule, and so we have a desire for rule. And so the desire for a king is not wrong, but what we see in this story is that the way these people were desiring a king, the kind of king they were desiring was wrong. That they were actually thinking, not like the people of God, they were thinking like Philistines. They're looking for a king to rescue them in the way that the pagan kings did. What they're doing is putting their trust in this idea of a king rather than in the reality of the gods whom they are called to know and to serve. And it seems that this was a period of relative peace and prosperity in the nation of Israel. Samuel had put up his Ebenezer stone, thus far the Lord has helped us. It seems that they weren't having to fight battles. The ark had come back. There was a truce between Israel and the Philistines. Things were pretty comfortable. And, and the sad reality is that often it's times of prosperity at which we can be more vulnerable to discontent and sin than times of poverty. Sometimes it's in times of real need. That's when we most throw ourselves upon God. Sometimes when, it's when life is relatively easy and straightforward that we can find ourselves prone to wander. And that seems to be what's happening to these people at this time, that they, they want to put their trust in, in this idea of a king rather than their trust in the true God. And, and we can put our trust in all kinds of kings rather than in... Jesus, the king who has died to save us. And so the Lord says to Samuel that he's going to grant them their request. 
but he wants them to know what that will mean. And so in verses 11 through 17 in this chapter, Samuel speaks to the people and he gives them a, he gives them a summary of what to expect from politicians. He says, this is what you're going to get. If you want this kind of king, you're going to get a king, but this is what having a king means. It means he's going to take. 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 That's what kings do. That's what politicians do. What Samuel predicts is actually the normal pattern of human history. History proves it again and again. What do kings do? What do politicians do? They take and they take and they take. And why is it that that's what happens? Well, partly it's because Kings just need to take. Government needs stuff. Government has to employ civil servants and armies and all the things that governments do. And that means that governments have to raise money, which means they have to take our taxes. And that's what kings do. That's what politicians do. That's just how the system operates. There's, there's a sense in which some of that is just inevitable and necessary. But what so often happens is that those in authority become entitled think they have a God-given right to take, to take, to take, and so often become corrupt as a consequence because they want to take and take and take more. And so the drift is always towards corruption. That danger is always there. However good and robust the system is, however many checks and balances are in place, whatever traditions a nation has... The drift is always towards corruption. Corruption always has to be battled against because corruption is always coming. And we can look at politicians and those in authority and we can be very critical and say, how dare they? And we wouldn't and I wouldn't. But actually the reality is there's a problem fundamentally with human beings. This is what it says in the letter to the Romans. You therefore have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Why is it that pretty much everybody who ends up in power seems to be prone to corruption? It's because everybody is prone to corruption. It's just when you're in power, you have more opportunity to reap the benefits of that. The problem really is the human heart. Put more bluntly, the, the problem is sin. The problem is sin. And I think in our culture we've become experts at imagining sin isn't real. That there are other explanations for why things go wrong, for why corruption seeps in. Humans are fundamentally good. And so we can fix the problems just by putting better management practices into place, more accountability structures. We can put more checks and balances in place. We can do more therapy with people and we can sort out all the problems. We can deal with corruption. And all those things are valuable. I'm grateful that we live in a nation where we have the checks and the balances that we do. I'm glad that we have a democracy. I'm glad that we can vote people in and vote people out. I'm glad that we have an independent judiciary. I'm glad we have a free press. I'm glad that we have a police force that is by and large not corrupt. I'm grateful for those things. I'm grateful for the place of skilled psychologists and psychiatrists who can help us understand ourselves and work out our issues and deal with our pain. I'm grateful for all those things. But... If we think those things themselves are enough, we find they're never enough. Because those things can't deal with the fundamental problem, which is our sin. Here's a quote. This quote is fire. It's from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and 
theologian killed by the Nazis just a few days before the end of the Second World War. He said this, The most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. The greatest psychological insights, ability, and experience cannot grasp this one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows what distress and weakness and failure are, but it does not know the godlessness of man. And so it also does not know that man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare to be a sinner. The psychiatrist must first search my heart, and yet he never plums its ultimate depth. The Christian brother knows when I come to him, here is a sinner like myself, a godless man who wants to confess and yearns for God's forgiveness. The psychiatrist views me as if there were no God. The brother views me as I am before the judging and merciful God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Fundamental problem is our sin. Don't forget, don't overlook, don't ignore the reality of sin. What's happening in Ukraine? What's that all about? It's all kinds of history and explanations. We can read and learn about Russian History, Russian national psychology, all the things which play into what's happening and attitudes there and the reasoning behind it. We can think about President Putin himself and think about his personal psychology. And I'm sure that he is a man who would benefit from some intense therapy sessions to work out some of the issues that he has. But the fundamental problem, the baseline reason why what's happening is happening is human sin. It's sin. In the end, it's rebellion against God. It's corruption that is causing what is happening in the Ukraine to happen. And that's true within, actually, each of our hearts. Bonhoeffer says, man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. And the Christian knows this. Sin, corruption destroys us. Forgiveness heals us, brings us into life. And so what we need to see destroyed is sin itself. And the good news of the gospel is that that has happened at the cross of Christ. In the humiliation of the cross, there is rescue. In the ultimate humiliation of Christ, hanging on the cross, dying in our place, there there is rescue because there, just as when the ark was taken into Dagon's temple in Philistia, there in that place of humiliation is a place where victory was won. Jesus at the cross killed the power of sin so that it need no longer have mastery over us. What Jesus did at the cross enables us to go through heart surgery which kills the power of corruption in our hearts. Now, the tragedy of the story told in 1 Samuel is that it's not only Samuel's sons, Joel and Abijah, who slip into corruption and sin. Actually, the whole nation slips into sin. It's like the storm has come and they just let the roof be ripped off. And they say to Samuel, we want a king over us. 
Nothing wrong with that, but it's the next thing which is the killer. Then we should be like all the other nations. Then we should be like all the other nations. With a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. The Israelites were thinking like Philistines. This is their great tragedy. This is their great failing. This is their great sin. Wanting to be like the other nations. They want to be like the Philistines. When they've been called to be God's house, God's people. They were meant to be different. And wanting to be like the other nations. Putting their hopes in this idea of a king who will lead them was... It's like being in a storm and having the roof ripped off the house. The distress of my dwelling. God's house battered because of their sin. I think there are some lessons for us. Three things particularly, I think, to apply for us at this time. The first thing is that when when we see corruption in the world, we shouldn't be duly, unduly unsettled or surprised. I don't know about you, but I actually felt very troubled this week by what's happening in Ukraine. It's kind of one of those situations where you think, what can we do? I said to Grace yesterday, I almost feel like I should, I think I'm just about young enough and fit enough still to go and volunteer. Should I get on a plane, go to Poland, cross the border? I don't think I will, but Grace wouldn't let me. But what do we do? There's a steep sense of trouble about what's happening. And... Out of this story we've been looking at this morning, I think one of the things the Lord would remind us of is not to be unduly surprised, whether it's something as big as what's happening in Ukraine or whether it's dodgy policeman or bent politician. Don't be surprised because actually that is the natural drift of the human heart. Sin, corruption. It's always there, always looking to creep in, always looking to... Samuel's sons became perverted. How could Samuel's sons become perverters of justice? Corruption creeps in. And so when we see corruption, yeah, we shouldn't be surprised because that is the natural drift of the human heart. And we need to look to Christ again and find our confidence in him. The second thing is that we need to recognize the reality of sin in our own hearts. That it is very easy to look at other people in other situations and to see corruption and to see sin and to call it out. But think of what that passage in Romans 2 says. You do the same thing. And this is kind of a a sober sober message, but it might be even today that amongst those who who know and love Christ, uh, it, it, it might be that we've kind of allowed the storm to come and the roof to be carried off. The, the reality is that you put your trust in Jesus and sin no longer has mastery over you. You've died to sin, is what Scripture says. Sin no longer has power over you, has no authority over you. And you're able, to, in Christ, to walk free of sin. That's our status as Christians, as saints of the living God. But we can still, like the, these people did in this story, we can look to the idols, we can look to false kings, we can say we, we want to be like the other nations, we, we, we don't want to be different, we want to be like others. And, and the roof can kind of be ripped off the house. Sin can come in, corruption can come in, and it might be even this morning that amongst us, brothers and sisters, there's things which we need to bring before the Lord again and say, yeah, I recognize, Lord, where I've kind of allowed the storm to come and some tiles have come off my roof. 
Corruption is seeping in. We need to acknowledge it, repent of it, bring it to the Lord, be freed of it again. It might be that you've never turned in faith to Jesus. Today could be the moment where you step into the freedom and the life, the forgiveness that he can bring. Forgiveness is how we are healed, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And then the third thing is that we do need to see that this house is meant to be different this series we're working through, look at the Old Testament. It's all about how God is building a house, a place where he will dwell. He wants to dwell with his people. And now, through the work of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, those of us who know God are described as living stones who are being built into a spiritual temple. There's no longer a physical tabernacle or a physical temple where you have to go and worship. No, now the Spirit of God indwells us. We're living stones being built into a spiritual house. And that means that we are called to live distinctly, differently. We're not to look at the world and say we want to be just like them as the Israelites did at this time. No, we are meant to be different. We're meant to be distinct. Our attitudes, our values are meant to be different because we have been encountered by the living God. We have known the healing power of his forgiveness. We have been changed. That heart surgery has happened to us. And so let's not get deluded by the idols who would tempt us away. Let's not, like the people, say we want a king to lead us who will go out and fight our battles. No, we, we have a king who has already fought and won the greatest of battles Jesus who has defeated our greatest enemy, sin, dealt with it in the humiliation of the cross where he has triumphed. We have a king. Let's follow him. He's building a precious house. Sometimes that house is tested, but in Christ it will stand firm, roof and walls intact. Brothers and sisters, let's follow Jesus. Let's know the power of his forgiveness. Let's celebrate who we are. Spiritual stones being built into a spiritual house for the honor and glory of God. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for your forgiveness poured out in us now because of what you accomplished at the cross. Lord, I pray for us. Pray for every one of us here this morning, King Jesus, that if there are things in our hearts which need to be dealt with, that by your mercy and grace we might acknowledge them before you, bring them before you, repent of what needs to be repented of, walk straight. Lord, I pray if we've been distracted by the kings of the world, Lord, if we've just been tempted to conform to the patterns of the world, help us to see and delight in our distinctiveness as the people of God. I pray, Lord, that here you would build your house amongst us, build a house which stands firm, which isn't compromised, where the roof and the walls stay intact, because we're a people who put our trust in you, who revel, delight in the forgiveness that is ours, who know what it is to stand before you and receiving a, receive a healing, a blessing, favor, deeper than anything anyone else can give us. Thank you that you are the king. Thank you, Jesus, you're our king. And we follow you again with gladness and joy today. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, stand and worship him.